Um, we are in part two of a series called Storytellers. And uh, how many of you were here last week by any chance? Yeah, so you got to hear uh, a member of Redemption Church Gilbert, Dan Moon, tell his story. If you missed that, I really want to encourage you to go to our podcast, which you can find through our website, um, and, and go back and hear his stories. And I just want to briefly, before uh, we start our conversation with Chuck, tell you why we do storytellers. One is every story that we, we believe is, a, is ultimately a story of God's amazing grace. And if that's a story that you're not familiar with, we use our stories to ultimately tell his story, uh, the story of Jesus. And then second, Secondly, um, one of my huge passions for 710 is that we have multi-generational connection, meaning I believe that this is the best people group in the entire church, and uh, I want you connected to those who are younger than you in service or mentorship, and I want you connected to those who are older than you uh, in the very same way in in service, mentorship, and discipleship. And if you really, uh, you know, if you've always kind of felt like, oh, the church, you know, I'll go to something like this, but the church is not really my thing, uh, and you're not engaged with people of different age stages in the church, you're really, really missing out on the beauty and the benefit of how God has designed this body and family to work together. So uh, it's such a huge privilege and honor for us to get to sit at the feet of those who tell these stories and get to hear from them. So um, Chuck, just briefly, you've been connected to uh, Redemption Church, Gilbert Church for about, for about how long and in what kind of capacities? Like how did you end up here? Yeah, I believe Laura and I came to, it was East Valley Bible Fellowship, and there was about 250 people, and they were meeting on Dobson. And someone was telling me about a short little guy who really could deliver the goods, and so we came to hear Tom. It wasn't me. but <laughs> It was the other short little guy. Yeah. The, you're the replacement, yeah. I think. So... We went, and like a lot of people at that time, we heard Tom Schrader speak, and we were taken not only by what he said, but kind of how he said it. And uh, Tom was a new pastor, and he had some rough edges, which people really seemed to gravitate toward at that time. So we got excited. It was one of my first churches. I had been a believer for two, two and a half, three years at that time. And uh, really getting to hear good, sound teaching, going through book by book. And so we, uh, we got involved in the church. And I can remember uh, just wanting to volunteer and coming in. And uh, we were meeting in at another church facility, so they needed someone to set up, clean up after the other church. They were a dirty lot. And... Uh, so we cleaned up, I cleaned up after them, got set up for our service, and then when we were done, I'd clean up. And uh, so that was uh, two, three hours on Sunday just doing janitorial maintenance work. And so when we moved over here, someone donated this property, 22 acres. And I remember Laura and I coming over here the first time, and it was just a bunch of, of weeds and rabbits and a few coyotes over here and walking around praying on this property and we moved over here and got to watch the church uh, get built in, in sections. But I continued maintenance and uh, would clean all the restrooms and ambush a few people on Sunday after service to help me. And uh, then I became one of the first paid staff and uh, did the maintenance here for probably two, three years. I was uh, the colonel of the urinal. And so... Uh, I saw that as a promotion, and I uh, was just excited really to be serving in a church where I just saw God adding to the numbers. I think we came over here with 500 people, and the very first Sunday we opened the doors, it was like 1,000 or 1,200 people, so we just grew uh, very quickly, and so I did that for a while, and then I began to uh, actually did the first adult Bible study classes that we did at the church. Uh, begin to teach in an area that's always been a passion for me. It's called the Doctrines of Grace. And so I began to teach that every quarter. It was uh, foundational for where the church was at that time and got licensed as a pastor here and probably did that for, a, for almost a decade. But when I was done cleaning the toilets, uh, I handed off my plunger to Tim Mon. And he took over. He, was, uh, he wasn't a colonel of the urinal. He came in as a lieutenant. But uh, that was the only opening paid position we had at that time. And Tim came and uh, humbly took that position 
although still teaching in the youth group, but that was where, uh, that's where the only place he could pick up a salary at that time. So that was an interesting phase in the church. So I did that probably 10 years. Then I went on to the elder board uh, for almost seven years, and I served on the elder board with uh, some of the older guys' names wouldn't be familiar to you other than Tom Schrader, but uh, uh, Jerry Smith and some other guys did that. But I do prison ministry. I'm going to get into that. But uh, both of them, the prison ministry I do had grown proportionally almost with the church. And it got, so I couldn't do both of those anymore. And my calling is to the incarcerated. And so I stepped down off the elder board, still wanting to stay on staff and be in the loop. Uh, I went back to maintenance and, uh, and grabbed my plunger and toilet brush and went back to work. So I really made that full circle from the toilet back to the toilet. And uh, I did that for another year and a half, two years. And at, one day I was just cleaning and I went, I can't clean another toilet, man, I'm done. <laughs> and that was about four years ago. And so uh, now we just attend church. I do some counseling. Uh, uh, with addicts and, and substance abusers. And so uh, still involved in the church, love this church, uh, have loved seeing the next generation come up and fill the positions for some of us, from some of us older guys. And uh, just, uh, it's been a church where the gospel's preached and God's at work. Yeah, that's one of the main reasons that I asked Chuck to come share his story is Chuck has always been such a huge encourager to me and just kind of cheering me on ever since I set foot on this uh, campus uh, over a decade ago and just always kind of just really in many ways sharpened me. And, and um, it, it's just I want 710 to know that there's people who they don't they're not a part of 710 they don't attend to 710 because they're not in the age stage but they're very much a part of 710 in the way that they hold me and our team up in prayer and the way that they pray for you guys they don't even know your names but they just pray for you in general pray for this generation and invest in serious ways financially time energy um, so that a community like this can exist. But you mentioned um, prison ministry, and I just want to hear just a little bit kind of how, how that came about, how you got um, into prison ministry, how that got started. Well, I'll drag you, I'll drag you all through that gutter. Uh, first, let me talk just a little bit about the ministry. Mount Nebo Prison Ministry began as a teaching ministry. That's the primary focus of the ministry. And it was to have an impact initially uh, my vision was have an impact on Arizona prisons with sound, biblically-based teaching, which is a relative term, but I understood what sound, biblically-based teaching was, and, and I wanted to send materials in and books and other materials and do correspondence that, uh, that just honored God and his word. And so my vision was to get in all the prisons in Arizona with our materials, uh, fast forward to 20, 25 years later, and we're in every state in the country, 400-plus uh, prisons that we're actively sending material into. We, uh, years ago, began with a curriculum called Fundamentals of the Faith. They'll have it in a bookstore here. It's a 13-chapter fill-in-the-blanks workbook. We send that to prisoners. They send it back, we grade it, and we return it to them with a MacArthur Study Bible. I remember years ago when MacArthur came out with that Study Bible, and that became one of our tools. And I remember Laura and I so excited that we were able to order a case, 12 of those. And I remember when they came delivered, and I, I just told Laura, wow, look at this, 12 Bibles. That's going to last us a couple months. Praise the Lord. And now they come... Uh, Next week, a semi will back up to the garage again and, and unload five pallets of them. And we become the largest now, we become the largest distributor of MacArthur Study Bibles in the world. And that's uh, my office is in, the, in my house, and the garage is shipping and receiving. And so it's always been lean and mean. And so how I got into prison ministry. Uh, it's a, it's a story not only of grace, but how God can, 
can take all that sin in our lives and use it for his purposes. I, uh, when I was 17, I went up to my dad and I told him, I'm absolutely tired of people telling me what to do. I'm going in the Marine Corps. And so he just said, okay, you know, the, the light is not on in this kid's eyes. And, and so I turned 17, and I, we were living in Minneapolis, and I remember getting on a plane in December. It was about 10 below, and I had my mucklucks and earmuffs on and, and landed in San Diego and went, whoa, I'm never going back there again. So I was the smallest guy in my platoon of 90 guys when I, when I joined the Marine Corps. And, uh, but that time was just, I, uh, I was gung-ho. I loved the Marine Corps. Right after boot camp and infantry training, I got a meritorious promotion. And this was in the mid-60s when Vietnam was beginning to pick up steam. And you know what? I grew up as a kid watching war movies and names that probably wouldn't be familiar to some would. John Wayne, Audie Murphy, and I watch these war movies. And as a kid, that looked really exciting. And after finishing boot camp and getting trained with the weapons, I was ready to go to Vietnam and kick butt. And uh, that's normally what happened when you were done with training. You went right over there at 17. They were looking for warm bodies at that time. Well, that didn't happen to me. I uh, went to school in North Carolina, and then I kept putting in papers. I wanted to go over to Vietnam. And then I got transferred out to California at Camp Pendleton and was in combat military police for a while, kept putting in paperwork. I got three more meritorious promotions. When I finally got my orders to go to Vietnam in December of 1967, I would have been one of the youngest sergeants in the Marine Corps at that time. So up those first two years, I again was what they would call gung-ho. I loved the Marine Corps. So I landed in Vietnam in December of 67. And uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail with Vietnam. I will tell you this, that I spent 10 months of my 13 in the bush, uh, saw a lot. Started smoking dope when I was over there. Last two, three months doing some of the harder drugs, opium, heroin. When I got back onto that plane 13 months later, all those fantasies about being a hero and what war would be like were gone. I remember my mom years later when, they, uh, when I got back to the States and, and they took a look at me and my mom would for years would say, I didn't recognize him. I had came back with a raging heroin habit. I married my childhood sweetheart, Sandy, just before I went over to Nam, and we met and uh, moved back to the, the Twin Cities and for, for about 30 days and then had to come back out and report into Camp Pendleton, and I did that. And I was getting high every weekend, and, and uh, Sandy just finally said, I've had enough, and she left. And I went AWOL, and a short time later was picked up and, and put in the brig, Camp Pendleton Brig. Up till 1969, I was the only guy that ever escaped from the Camp Pendleton Brig. And I escaped, was gone a couple months, hooked up with some draft dodgers and deserters, and was getting ready to go to Canada. And the day before I was going to leave, I got caught in Fresno, California, bouncing off the curb under the influence of barbiturates and got taken back to the brig. And, you know, when I got back there, the uh, Campino was a pretty tough brig at that time. And I remember coming in and a lieutenant sitting there and telling me to get at attention. I told him, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm all done with that. And he said, well, you'll stand at attention before the night's out. And I said, I don't think I will. And so he had a couple MPs take me. And that was the beginning of eight months of really anger and hostility. And it was them against me. They hung me upside down, stripped me down, hung me upside down over a beam, urinated on me, took a sponge, rubbed it around the toilet, shoved it in my mouth beat me off and on, would let me down when I passed out. And after about six hours, I said, okay, I'll, I'll stand at attention now. And they took me into the office and got the lieutenant up. And when he came out, by that time, I 
my anger had come back. Anyway, spit on him, and so they threw me in what they call a strip cell. And that's what it was, a cell, cement cell with nothing in it. They gave you a mattress at 5 in the morning. They took it out at 5 in the afternoon, and that's all you had. And you went out to the bathroom twice a day. If you had to go more than that, you went in your milk cartons. It was built to adjust your attitude. And so when they had problems out in the general population, they'd put somebody in there for a week, maybe two weeks. 30 days was the maximum that they were allowed to keep anyone in there. Well, I was in there 30 days and assaulted some guards and uh, got creative and uh, throwing my milk cartons on them when they come by. And 60 days went by and 90 days went by and eight months went by in that strip cell. And they would hose me down with water and put fans on me and it was them trying to break me, but I was so full of anger and hostility that I wasn't gonna let it happen. And I'd never been suicidal, but I decided I know how to beat them. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna commit suicide. And I wrote a goodbye letter to my folks and had it snuck out with a guy going to a court martial. Well, in that perfect timing, Life Magazine had just done an article on the Camp Pendleton Brig, and it was on the front cover of 1969, I believe it was June or July, on the front cover of the magazine about a guard that had got hung in the mess hall and the race riots and the rape and the murders that were happening there. And my parents got a hold of a congressman, and because of congressional interest in the brig at that time, when this congressman called some people at Camp Pendleton. One day, all of a sudden, my cell opened up, and they said, uh, come on, you're getting out. Well, I hadn't let them cut my hair for like eight months. I was just, I mean, I was, I was a wingnut. And uh, they had to get a, ch I thought they were actually gonna take me out and kill me. And so they had to get a chaplain up there to talk me out. And so four plus years in the Marine Corps, three days later, they took me to the front gate, gave me an undesirable discharge, and gave me the boot. And I left and went back, Sandy, and I had a daughter born while I was in the brig. I still remember they threw a piece of paper in my cell, and it said, uh, your wife had a daughter. So I went back to Minneapolis and got a haircut, uh, started working, doing a family thing, and after about two months, I decided, you know what, I, I could smoke a little weed and have a couple beers on the weekend. I got that coming. Well, that escalated, and pretty soon Sandy threw me out, and I found myself on the streets of Minneapolis-St. Paul with a heroin habit again and broke. And I ran into a couple of friends of mine that I had joined the Marine Corps with, and these guys were into pulling arm robberies. And they said, do you, do you wanna go along? We're gonna do one tomorrow night. And I, I said, I'd love to. It was a chance to carry a gun again. I'd become a little bit of an adrenaline junkie when I was in Vietnam. It was a chance for all that anger and that hatred to come out. And so the first bank robbery, first supermarket robbery I went on, we got almost $30,000. And I said, wow, I've found a new career here. And we were going out every other weekend and taking down a supermarket. I was flying down to Mexico once every two, three months and grabbing four or five ounces of cocaine and heroin and bringing that back. And I had dresser drawers full of cash living in the fast lane. After almost nine months of pulling these these robberies, my friends decided they wanted to hit a bank. And I had hepatitis that night and was bright yellow and I weighed about 130 pounds and sick, couldn't go. In their first bank robbery they went on, they got identified. And so they were looking for them. And I knew that I had to leave town, so I grabbed uh, all the cash I had, left everything else I had got behind and got on a plane and flew out to Santa Cruz, California and moved up in the mountains with a friend I had met in Vietnam who had a cabin up in the Santa Cruz mountains. But one thing about drugs and alcohol, no matter how much money you got, 
it'll eventually run out. And after about three months, I was broke. I had a rage and habit and got up one night, sawed up a 12-gauge shotgun and drove down to San Jose. And from San Jose to San Francisco, robbed seven or eight motels. Next weekend, I went out. And here's some irony in this. I went out on a Sunday night, all loaded, drove down to Santa Cruz looking for a place to rob. The only thing that was open was a donut shop. So I went in and robbed them for $8 and six Long John donuts, maple filled. <laughs> I got about five blocks from the donut shop and they lit, lit me up. And I was arrested thrown into Santa Cruz County Jail, taken through lineups over the next week, identifying me for the previous armed robberies. So, and then they threw a couple on me that I didn't commit. And 21 years old, just been out of the Marine Corps a little over a year. Looked like I was 17 or 18. And I remember going to court, my dad sitting behind me, I can, I can still hear him when the judge said five to life in the California prison. And I can still hear the wind being sucked out of my dad. And you know, I was afraid. I'd heard a lot of stories about prison and I looked young. I weighed about 140 pounds, still sick, being strung out for years. And I thought, well, once they find out I'm a former Marine and Vietnam veteran and a notorious donut bandit, uh, everything will be okay. But that's not the way it works in there. It's a, it's a different culture. It's a food chain mentality. And they got guys in there that can literally smell fear. And I remember walking onto that first yard and some cat calls and, and that stuff. And I remember being in my cell, and I'd been there a couple of weeks, and I, I got a job at the electric shop, and I was going to work one day, and a couple of guys came up to me and gave me a list with some items on it. And they said, when you go to the store, we want you to get these things for us. Make sure you do. And I remember laying in my cell that night thinking, you know what, I'm never going to come out of here because I'm going to have to kill somebody, or I'm going to be killed. And a guy had befriended me at the, in the electric shop, and I told him what I was dealing with, and he said, you got to deal with it. And so he made a shank, and I went out on the yard that night, and I'd put on a little weight and, and went up and just confronted these guys and told them, I don't know what you see in my eyes, but whatever it is, you're mistaken. I'm not going to do my time that way. Well, I don't think I put any fear on them, but they moved on to easier prey. And I found out something, that fear is a great motivation. So I started going out to the weight pile for two, three hours a night and just pumping iron and eating everything I could get my hands on. And within four or five months, I put on 50 pounds, got buff, changed a few dental records, and established myself in the prison culture. And you know, initially... I said, whenever I get out of here, I'm never going to come back again. So I looked at all the world's programs, the AA and the NA and the anger management and, the, and uh, living stress-free and all the different programs and looked into TA and psychology today and wanting to get to a point where when I did get out, I would never have to come back. And some years later, I stepped out. And Sandy and Kelly actually had reunited while I was in prison, moved out to San Jose, and uh, I was determined. Good intentions. I had the best intentions. Never going to go back to that culture again, to that darkness. And for three or four months, working hard, enjoying my daughter, Kelly. And then I thought, you know what? I could smoke a little weed on the weekend and have a few beers. Well, I couldn't do that. And after about two months of that picking up, Sandy and, and Kelly left, moved back to Minneapolis. And I started going to the bars. And I'd never been much of a drinker, but I found out a couple of things in the bars that 
first of all, if you go to the same one long enough, they know your name and they say, hey, Chuck, and I thought that was cool. The other thing, there was always some jerk in the bar besides me. And I still had all that anger and all that hatred, and I was a very violent, vulgar, volatile guy. And I got in a fight almost every night. And sometimes I'd be on a blackout, and I'd get up in the morning, and I'd have a broken finger and blood on me. I'd have to call a friend and say, man, what happened last night? And that went on for a year, and that culminated in me stabbing a guy one night in a bar. And I went back to prison. This time, not really looking for answers. No fear. I did a few programs just to present to the parole board so I might get out. Some years later, I got out. Was off parole for a day or two. Started back going back to the bars. Within that first week, I was in a fight and stabbed two guys. I went back to prison. And that's that revolving door that I was in, behind drugs and alcohol. Always at the center of that. Stopped looking for answers. I was a guy without a conscience. I found out I didn't have to stick a gun in someone's face and take their money, that I could manipulate people. And I became a master manipulator. And I met Laura, the lady I'm with now. And she was another victim. She qualified because she had a house and a job. And so I moved in with her. She had a couple of kids that became my stepchildren. And for four, four years, and we had a son together, Daniel, for four years, I took her through that emotional abuse and neglect as a victim. I started shooting meth. That became my drug of choice and drinking. And I want to try to communicate to you just where I was at at 36, 37 years old. Absolutely no conscience. I walked out of the door one, one day and told Laura I was going to get a pack of cigarettes and went and got a hooker I knew and came out to Mesa where my folks had been snowbirds and I'd been out there once and left, never called, never gave two seconds thought to my little blonde-haired boy at home that was a year old. Was out in Mesa a couple months and the lady left and the money dried up so I called Laura and conned her into leaving her job of 14 years at Whirlpool and bringing the kids out because I had changed and I was clean now and life was going to be good. And she loved me and she went for it. And she came out and I put her through another four years of emotional abuse and neglect. I was absolutely without conscience. Everybody was a victim. In July of 1989, I was arrested for selling a stolen motorhome to an undercover cop in Mesa. Gave him a great deal on it. <laughs> You'd think he'd been happy, but... So to try to get this point across a little more of just where I was at, when they arrested me and I got in that squad car that day, there was no fear. It was just another, another long line of squad cars and handcuffs in my life. I got a little two-year-old boy at home, a wife, stepkids. Not one thought about them. The only thought in my mind when I got in that squad car was, I hope I get downtown in time for lunch. Because if you don't get booked in time for lunch, you got to wait till dinner. That was the only concern I had. Knew I was going back to prison. That was just where I was at. 40 years old. Living in that darkness. So they put me in a cell, and, and I remember just, it was in July of 89, it was hot, and about 60 guys in a 10-man cell, and I crawled underneath a bunk and was minding my own business. 
and something very foreign began to happen. All of a sudden, my conscience began to come alive. Now, I know now, looking back, what was happening. The Holy Spirit bypassing a flawed conscience was beginning to bring me face to face with who I really was, not who I thought I was. And as I laid there with my conscience coming alive and I began to see this long, long line of victims in my life, some of them without faces that just had the misfortune to come across my path, and others familiar faces, people that loved me, that kept getting back in line again. My folks who were in their 70s, who only lived a couple miles from us, and I couldn't remember the last time I told them I loved them or hugged them. The only time I went to see them was to put the touch on them for something. I thought of Laura and all those years of her life that she'd wasted believing me. For three hours I laid there and God dropped the weight of my sin on me. And I remember one of the clearest reflections I had right there was my little son Daniel, two years old, then curly-haired, little blonde kid, two and a half, three. And I was out all tweaked out on tweaking on my truck and and I remember looking down, this was a couple days before I got busted, and looking at him, and he was looking, smiling up at me, and I went, what do you want? Get out of here. Go play. Quit bothering me. What he wanted was a dad. But I had no capacity to love or care. And after that three hours of laying there, all of a sudden from deep within, I just cried out, God help me. It was a God I didn't know. No one had ever shared the gospel with me. I knew nothing about Jesus. And they booked me, and I went into a tank and I can't stop weeping. I hadn't cried in 15 years. And I could not stop weeping. And I walked into this tank, and, and I see who's who by the ink and the gangs, and I'm just trying to hide my face because I can't stop crying. I went in to a cell, and I sat on a bunk with my head in my hands and just weeping. And there was a guy there reading a Bible. Such a coincidence. And he looked at me and he said, looks, looks like you're having a tough day. And I told him, man, I'm just a terrible person. And you know what? His name was Sean, mid-20s, nice-looking kid. I was sleeping the next day when they rolled him up and he was gone. So, But he didn't just give me, Jesus loves you, say a prayer, bow your head. He told me, you know what, I think... I think God's at work in your life right now, and he's, he's convicting you of your sin. That was a new word for me, sin. And he walked me through a biblical gospel. He told me about God, who's a holy God, and a just God, and a God of wrath and vengeance. He told me about sin. He told me about hell. In fact, he gave a biblical description of hell that was so clear. And I thought, man, I felt bad before I started talking to this guy. And then he took me to the cross. And he told me about Christ. And that he had gone to the cross and absorbed God's wrath for every sin ever committed by every person that would ever believe. And that if I would trust in Christ, he would cleanse me from all my sin. That he would forgive all of that. So I said, well, let me think. No, I didn't. I said, man, give me Jesus. 
give me Jesus. And in tears, I just... And we hear different stories, and some, sometimes you hear that the weight of my sin was just lifted off me. Guys, I'm telling you, it was like a safe was lifted off me. Just that quick, I felt the weight of that sin come off me. You know, you hear my story, and the conversion, certainly radical, but every conversion is just as radical. Whether you get saved at 12 years old or 40, no matter what your life looked like, the Bible says that we were dead, we were God-haters, we were under God's wrath, and our destiny was hell. And regeneration, where God reaches in and rips out that stony heart and puts in a heart of flesh and brings you from darkness to light, from death to life, and changes your destiny. Every salvation is radical. But mine appeared more radical. Because, man, I mean, I really knew how to sin, and I went after it with gusto for many years. I was a devout racist for 20-plus years, active racist. I hated people, affiliated with the Aryan Brotherhood and the Ku Klux Klan. I lived in that ignorance and hate for years. And right away, as I looked out in that tank and, and saw Latinos and blacks and Realize that right away, all that ignorance, all that hatred, all that anger, and it was gone, just gone. And I realized pretty quickly there's only two groups of people in this world, those that know Christ and those that don't. He changed my language. I mean, I could em empty out an IHOP in about five minutes. Grab the kids, Martha. <laughs> I mean, I was intentionally loud and abrasive and vulgar, and I hope you didn't like it. And I used to order my T-shirts from mercenary magazines, and they'd have racial slurs on them, and hoped you didn't like it. And he changed my language. Really made it offensive to be around that kind of language for any length of time. Little things like, I had bit my fingernails down to the nubs. I was 40 years old. I had bit them since I was a kid. Took it, never bit my nails again. I began to get on the phone. I called Laura, and I just, Laura was already packing up. It was a marriage. It was never a marriage, and she was packing up and headed back to California when she heard I got busted. And I got on, and I didn't have any theology. I just said, man, Jesus, Jesus. And she would tell you today that although she'd heard every con, something was different in my voice. I called my mom and dad again in their 70s. And all I could say was, Jesus has saved me. Jesus forgave me. And my dad said, well, that's a new one, Chuck, but we're not getting you out. And I said, I don't, I don't care if I ever get out. And I really didn't. I knew I was going back to prison. I remember laying down those nights right after God saved me and just having the eight, ten hours in jail where it's loud of a peaceful night's sleep with, with just a peace I'd never known. Well, I began to pray that, that God would let me out on bail. And I had a very high bail, and uh, because of the time, I won't go into a lot of detail, but you know, when you first get saved, you really don't have a history of faith with the Lord. So, you, I mean, you know he's real and th things have changed, but I didn't have a history. And I was just praying, God, please let me go out and let me tell my family how sorry I am. Let me put my arms around my mom and dad and my, my wife and my brother and sister and let me, let me just tell them how sorry I am and tell them about you, Lord. Well, God honored that, and I got my bail reduced and stepped out of there for four months on bail and got to see the reality that when Christ comes into a life, he doesn't just tune it up. He transforms it. And I got to see my mom and dad in their 70s who were Catholics, kind of, 
And I remember coming in and just in tears, hugging them and telling them how sorry I was. And, and then here was my gospel at, at three, a couple months into the faith. Mary can't help you. You've got to throw away the beads. Pur- purgatory ain't real. You've got to be born again. You're going to hell. <laughs> and my folks just went, woo. And, you know, Matthew 10 talks about when you come to Christ that a lot of times he didn't come to bring peace but a sword, and that sword falls in the family. Some of you have experienced that. You, you got friends or family, and you start talking about Christ, and they go, hey, we're glad you found religion and good for you, but don't bring that Jesus crap in here. Well, that didn't happen with me. I got to see my mom and dad, my wife, my sister and her husband, my brother, all come to Christ in that four months and get baptized and came broken over their sin and true repentance and faith. It was recommended I do 10 years because of my history, and, and, and I remember going to court and my lawyer saying, hey, we got a, there's a different judge today. We need to get this postponed. You know, he's the hanging judge. And, but I had enough history at that time with God that I knew that my sentence would come from him, not from the judge, that God controlled my destiny now and my life. Instead of 10 years, I got what they call five soft, and I went in for, I was in two years. And in that two years, I got under the teaching of a guy named John MacArthur and, and uh, listened to 4,000 messages. I had read four books up till the time I was 40 years old. I was such a burnout after 10 years on meth, I could not have a complete cognitive thought when I got busted. And I began to read God's word and read books, and God renewed my mind and transformed my thinking. And in that two years, I've had people say, well, where'd you go to seminary? I told them I was at PU, Perryville University. In that two years, I got grounded, and that's where the vision for Mount Nebo came about. So that was in July of 89. I'd like to be able to look you all in the face and say, you know, it's just been, I've been floating on holiness this whole time. Uh, I figured that's my lie. I could tell it the way I want, but that's not true. And anyone who's walked with the Lord any length of time, I, I'm hoping all of you got to hear Jed and sharing his story on Sunday, but that's something that can happen. And often does happen, those dry seasons, and now we're even questioning, man, do I know Christ? One thing after almost 30 years with the Lord, if there's a one secret of the Christian life, I would say that it's this, always, always, always pursue Jesus. For many years, I fell in love with ministry and this church and very subtly loved all the things God gave me but forgot about my love for the God who gave them. And he had to take me out to the woodshed a few times and say, and I began to believe my own press and, and things like that. And he just, he changed that. But I would say that, pursue Jesus. And if you're sitting in here tonight, You've been around a little while. You know the changes that I just talked about don't happen through a process or a 12-step program. It's a supernatural thing. Only God can do that. Would you care if I prayed before you did? No, I, no, no not at all. <laughs> I, you can take over this ministry <laughs> after tonight. Um, uh, no, thanks. Yeah. I, I understand that. Um, I absolutely want you to close us in prayer. I just, I want to just tell one real quick story because I want. Um, I'm in no hurry. I mean, I'd, I'd sit here and tell you more than I know if I had the time. To. <laughs> That's typically what I do. Um, there, there's, there's two things. One, um, I want to tell a real quick story about an experience that I had in the, in a prison with you, um, preaching, not as a prisoner. <laughs> um, and then. Um, yeah, and then I'd love just if you could just tell us kind of how we can 
uh, rally around, support, pray for mm. um, Mount Nebo, and then yeah, absolutely, I'll have you uh, kind of close us in prayer. I I got invited. Was it last year or the year before? Uh, about a year, year yeah, and a half ago. Yeah. To go to a prison in California with um, with Chuck, and I was super nervous about that. Only just because I just felt, man, what in the world do I have to bring to that? And also, it's prison. Um, but went out there, and um, everything that you think about prison as far as its darkness, hostility, scariness is a thousand percent true. And I had nothing to really be concerned about, meaning like I'm not like going to prison, I'm just like going to prison to preach. Um, but there's been one other place in the red light district in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, where I felt that tangible presence of evil and the way that um, people are dehumanized. Um, They are not there to uh, talk about how we are image bearers of God there in the prison. And um, I just remember watching Chuck not only walk the halls um, and interact with the men who were there, but prayerfully walk the halls and prayerfully interact with the men who were there. And there was a moment where something had happened in the prison and, and it felt like our, our meeting was going to get shut down before it even started. And we just, we prayed together right there. And it was like, I'm just telling you, one of the most tangible experiences I've ever had where light versus darkness was just so real. And the and the this is not a, a warfare where the weapon where with fleshly weapons. This is mm-hmm. spiritual warfare. One of the very few times I've, I've so tangibly experienced that, and um, the work that God has Chuck doing or is doing through Chuck in these prisons is so incredible, so unique, and so necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, lives are not changed. Through the, through the prison system, lives are changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even guys who had come to know um, the Lord while in prison and had no shot of getting out of prison, you see just they are a different person. They are like, God has me here to be on, on mission. I remember I was sitting down, I was talking to the guy before I got to preach, and um, he was just so amazed. He's like, oh, man, a pastor. He's like, that's just so great. And then he started to talk to me about how he felt like God had given him mission and purpose and the ability to bring the gospel into that prison. I was like, I don't know. It has been, I don't know that I've felt clarity about purpose and mission and calling the way that God has given mm-hmm. this guy purpose and mission and calling. It was, it was just so, it was so amazing. So um, I'd love for you to just tell us just how we can get connected to Mount Nebo. The other thing, I don't mean to embarrass you. The other thing is um, Chuck's on Facebook. So you should be his friend on Facebook, one. Uh, two, he has a post uh, the, from Veterans Day about his experience <laughs> in Vietnam. And he's currently, as of the start of 710, he was currently at 99 likes. <laughs> he's never had more than 99 <laughs> likes ever. So I want you guys to go on Facebook and like his latest post and just, like, absolutely make it the highest rated <laughs> post he's, he's ever had. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I was telling Paul, I said, you know, I've been watching social media. And I can't believe people get excited about 100 likes. What's up with that? I've never had more than 10 or 15, so I'm at 99 on this one. I go, man, I just, can you vote twice? And, <laughs> and you know. Well, no, that's, yeah. that's legit, man. We, we, we want to bless you in a powerful way <laughs> with that. Yeah. But um, would, you, would you just, yeah, just tell us how we can connect to Mount Nebo and then close yeah. this in prayer. Man. I would say mostly just prayer. Uh, I want to take a couple minutes here. When I got into this prison ministry and... Uh, as a master manipulator, I kind of had a conversation with the Lord early on that, and I don't know if any of you read biographies, but you should read one on George Mueller, who had orphanages and 10,000 orphans that he cared for. Never once, never once asked for a nickel from anyone. He did it all through prayer. And early on, I told God, as it just requested, that as a master manipulator, I don't want to go out and beat the bushes and do fundraisers because I probably wouldn't know if I was manipulating or ministering. 
And, and so, Lord, I'll do the work if you'll just meet the needs you bring. And I found out quickly God doesn't have a money problem. And, and he's been faithful. And he has generously and faithfully met every need he's brought over the years. And so sitting here, I mean, a lot of, I, I see a lot of top ramen faces here. And so not, not looking for any funding for the ministry. But I seriously, seriously would, would covet your prayers for those of you who have a relationship with Christ and have his ear. Your prayers for the ministry to continue to impact life lives in the prisons. Those guys, because it's such a dark place, believers shine particularly bright in there. But it's one of the few places in this Western culture where there's a price to pay for naming the name of Christ. And it can be just ridicule, or it can be physical, or it can be brutal. And so being a believer in there, uh, they need prayer. So you could pray for the incarcerated. You could pray for me to be faithful. You know, when Paul said about going into prison, a scary place, and I remember on, being on the elder board, asked to go over to children's ministry to speak, and I said, I, I won't do that. You know, they scare the crap out of me, them kids. But I'd, I'd much rather be up on death row talking to those guys in there with a second grader, so that's just, but let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this evening. I, uh, just today, I tended to spend more time in my, in my bedroom on my knees praying because, uh, Lord, I know that in a group like this, there's people that love you and know you. There's people that would say they're believers but have no witness of the Spirit. There's others in here that don't know you. And so I just prayed all day, Lord, that your spirit might do a work. Might this very evening, Lord, bring someone out of that darkness. Give them life. Bring them conviction of their sin and their desperate need for you. That today is the day of salvation. And you tell us not to harden your heart, not to assume that there'll be a, another time. But Lord, that you would impress upon them that there's an urgency in dealing with their sin. Lord, I pray that your spirit would do that because if he doesn't, it won't happen. Lord, I, I thank you for this group that, that comes here on a Tuesday night for whatever reasons they come and they hear worship, they have community, they get encouraged, and they're in a place where there's a waterfall of grace where they can be changed. And so I appreciate this ministry. I thank you for this evening. I lift up your name, the name of Jesus Christ, the name above all names. And we thank you, Lord, for all your goodness, for your mercy and grace. And it's your name we pray. Amen. I don't want to run from my boy.